which, thank you, Isaiah. Um, just lost the batteries on my microphone, so I'll use this one. Um, wow, this is the first time I've ever felt a little bit cold in this room. <laughs> Feels kind of nice, doesn't it? Yeah, so um, I grew up um, in a church that I loved. Like, I loved my Sunday school teachers. I loved my friends. I loved my pastors. I had um, youth pastors who, like, invested in me and took a special care and concern in me and just had a really good experience growing up in church. I feel like I possibly even became a Christian. I did become a Christian because of the way that I was raised in my church and the way that the trajectory of my life that God sent me on when I met him. Now, what's important to understand is that a lot of people have not had that experience. I'm sure that some of you right here in this room have not had that experience growing up. There are so many stories of people who have been burned by the church, who have been mistreated at the church, that people's opinions of the church are just maybe at an all-time low. In a lot of surveys, people will say that they believe Jesus is Savior and Lord at a much higher percentage than they'll say that the church is a genuine, authentic, good place to be. People have much less faith in the church than they even do in Jesus. There's a phrase that's becoming more popular. It's, I, I love Jesus, but not the church. And it's really a sad state of affairs that we're in. Here's one quotation, if you turn your attention to the screen, that was done by a research group that captures people's opinions about the church. So a lot of people still love Jesus, still believe in scripture, and most of the tenets of their Christian faith. But they have lost faith in the church. While many people in this group may be suffering from church wounds, we also know from past research that Christians who do not attend church say it's primarily not out of wounding, but because they can find God elsewhere or that church is not personally relevant to them. Now, in our sermon today from this text, I want to answer two questions. I want to answer question one. How does Jesus feel about the church? Question two I want to answer is, what does Jesus' death have to do with the church? And the main burden that I want these questions to put on our hearts, the main thing that I want in our hearts when we leave this room today, is that the person that God wants to use to build his new community is you. And the reason I use new community rather than church is because we have this idea in our head, don't we, that church is like a building or church is an institution like the Catholic church. But if you read the New Testament, it never talks about a building and it never talks about an organization. It talks about a people. The church is the people who are here. That's why I use the phrase new community, the new community that God is building. He wants to use you to do it. All right, let's talk about our first question. How does Jesus feel about the church? And the answer is that we're going to work towards is that the church is a multi-ethnic community that Jesus loves. A multi-ethnic community that he loves. So, so Paul starts out in verse 1 
he mentions that he's about to pray. And he says, I'm a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul's talking about his suffering, his imprisonment, and all of a sudden that sparks in his mind this, these next 12 verses. It's like a tangent he goes on. It's, I think it's one of the most incredible tangents in the history of the world anyone's ever went on. Before he prays, he says, there's something more I want to say about the church. If you remember last week, Travis spoke. Travis talked about how Jesus restores our relationship with God and he restores our relationship with one another. Well, now Paul is going to keep on going and he keeps developing that thought. So let's see what he says in verses 2 and 3. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. So the word that jumps out to me in this passage is mystery. What is Paul talking about when he's talking about a mystery? When we think of mystery, I think the things that come in our minds are like Scooby-Doo or Sherlock Holmes. And it's usually like someone has done something bad and they're trying to cover up and it's up to like the hero to seek and solve and figure out what happened. But that's just not the case in the Bible. When you see the word mystery in the Bible, it's talking about something else. What it's talking about is that it's something that God has to show to us. It's something that we can never ever figure out on our own and it's something that he's going to illuminate our minds and show it to us. And so if we listen to his voice and look in his word and obey him, we, will, we can know the mystery. So what is the mystery? What, what is it? He talks about the mystery. What is it? Let's take a look at verse 6. He says, the mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs with Israel, members of one body, and shares together in the promise in Jesus Christ. So what, what, is, what do we see here? Like, what is it? It's that the Jews and Gentiles are on even ground. That might sound a little weird to you. Well, what are you talking about? It's that there is no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Everyone who's a follower of Jesus has the exact same footing and standing with Christ. There is no division within the body. And that is actually a crazy thing to say. If you approach this from the Jewish mindset in the first century. Because if you go back to that time, the Jewish people were the holy people of God. And in order to get to God, you had to go through the Jewish people. And they had hundreds and hundreds of rules that they had to keep to maintain their ritual purity. And everyone else outside of that covenant community were separated from God by their sin, by the fact that they didn't have those laws, that ritual purity. I mean, I myself am a descendant of a Viking pagan who, like, pillaged and did terrible things. And, and I eat pork. I'm a pork-eating barbarian. That's, like, the way the Bible talks about me. I know I might not seem like it. But it's true. It's true. It's, it's an amazing thing to think 
that that division is gone now that Jesus Christ has come. This is a consequence of Jesus' death for sinners. It's that he creates a new family. The Old Testament creates a lot of problems that Jesus solves, and one of the problems is that there was two standings in the family. There was the covenant people of God, and then there was the outsiders who came there, but they weren't quite part of that family. No more. No more. Since now we come to Jesus, we're born again. That's what happens. We all go through the new birth. Whether you're a Jew, you're a Gentile, if you know Jesus, it's because you've been born again. And there are no special children in this family. There are no favorite children in this family. There's no older brother that the dad likes and the younger brother who's bad at sports and the father doesn't like it. There's no sister who's prettier. There's none of that, any of that. The father is all about every one of his kids because he redeemed them specially. He sent his son Jesus to make us all children, to be a body, to be a people where there could be no division. Now you remember Travis's sermon last week. He talked about the biggest division there could be being Jew and Gentile. Like that is like the biggest division that we could ever find. And I'm encouraged that that's the case because when I look around at our society right now and I see the way things are, I see division. I see division based off of different cultures, different ethnicities, different ages, different political views. I really feel like there's a lot of tension right now and things are, seem to be being pulled apart despite our best efforts. And I wonder, is it possible? Like, can the church really be this thing where people are one? I sometimes wonder with how hard things are right now in our culture, can we really come together and be one? And the answer is no, unless, unless Jesus has died. So the fact that Jesus has died gives us a hope to be the kind of new community where there isn't the divisions that separate other people. That's where our hope for unity comes from. I really long to see a church, I really long to see all people's church be a place where people of different ethnicities, people of different backgrounds, people of different ages and socioeconomic statuses can come together and be one family with one another. I really long to see the gospel do that. And each of us, we need heart work for this to happen. I need heart work for this to happen. My heart, as kind as I tried to be, as loving as I tried to be, is not where it needs to be yet. I need to grow in loving people who are different than me. And we all need to see this, that we all can be inward focused and selfish and it really takes an outward love for an intentional love for other people in order to overcome the barriers that society has put up that our sinful hearts have put up i want you to think in your mind right now who would you be least comfortable with sitting with you beside you on the pew right now or having over to your home for dinner who would you be least comfortable with? Maybe someone from a completely different background than yours. 
maybe a single mother with a lot of children who are just not quite as disciplined as they should be. Maybe two men holding hands. Maybe a white supremacist from the Charlottesville rally. Who are, are you not comfortable being around? And how can Jesus cause us to, like him, leave our place of comfort and our place of belonging to serve and love that person so that they can join this astonishing new community that Jesus is trying to create? You see, the, the point, what happens when we have a place that loves one another, like the, that's different from the world, is that it's actually astonishing, and it shows people that Jesus is real. And it's going to, and our test, I love the gospel, and I love the proclamation of Christ, and that's one way God shows that he's real, but another way he shows it's real is by the family that that gospel creates. And the more and more we sh the gospel breaks down barriers and brings together a family, a group that is not separated, the more and more we show the world that Jesus is real. And that's why I love our name here at All People's Church, All People's Church. This is one of the things we're focusing on. This is one of the ways that we are doubling down and saying this is what we want to specialize in. We want to be a place where anyone is welcome. We want to understand that the foot, that the ground at the foot of the cross is completely level and whoever may come, may come. That's what Jesus says. Whoever comes, I will not cast out. And do we believe that? Do we have an understanding of that sheer grace? So why, why did Jesus do it this way? Why is this the mystery that he wanted to reveal? Why did he want to create a community of all different kinds of people? And the reason is because he's worthy of it. That's why he creates this kind of community. He's worthy of that kind of community. When only one kind of people finds Jesus to be special, and everyone else finds him tasteless or unappealing, that doesn't make it look like he's very special. But because he's the Lord who is worthy of the adoration and respect of every kind of different person, he creates a community that includes all those kinds of people. And so the reason that we strive, the reason that we push and push and push for new kinds of people to join the family of God is because we see a God who deserves uh, the worship of all those kinds of different people. And so the answer to having a church that includes everyone is having a Savior who's glorious. Do you see him that way today? If you do, you will try to create the family that he came to create, the family that he came to die for. So now the second question I want to answer is, what does Jesus' death have to do, if anything, with this new community? What does his death have to do with this new community? And the answer that we're going to work towards is he died not to save individuals, but to bring the church into being. So before Paul keeps talking about the church, he talks about himself for a moment. He says in verses 8 and 9, although I'm less than the least, 
of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. So why does Paul mention this? He's talking about the church. He switches to himself, and at the end we'll see he goes back to the church. I think there's two reasons. The first reason is that Paul is saying that he is, considers himself to be the least of all sinners. Less than the least of all sinners. He actually even makes up a word at this point in the text to say that. Less than the least of all sinners. And we know he must feel that way because in this passage right now where he's writing about the church, he actually spent his career and life persecuting and trying to kill that church. Man, he must think of himself as less than the least of all sinners. But why is that helpful for us? Why is that helpful for us? Because I said the main burden today is that God wants to use people like you to build his new community. And we think, but Lord, who am I? I'm a sinner. What did I do last night? What did I do this morning? No, God wants to use people who are sinful, yet made clean, hopelessly lost, yet saved, as the people who build his new community. If he used the person whose job it was to kill the church, to make the church, then guess what? You have a job too. You're hired. God wants you. God will use you. And the second reason that I think he brings this up, that I think it's important, is because Paul says that Jesus Christ's riches are unsearchable. They're boundless. There, there's, no, there's no end to discovering more about Jesus Christ. Friends, if we're bored with Jesus Christ, the problem's not with him. It's with our hearts. And why is that important? Because if Jesus is going to bring together a church of all different kinds of people, they're going to have a, not very much in common. Different backgrounds, different preferences, different tastes, different activities, different schedules. What's going to hold these people together? What's going to keep them as one family? The answer is that Jesus Christ satisfies everyone together. Everyone can have a shared affection for Jesus Christ. I can go to any nation on the world. I can go to Somalia. I can go to Mexico. I can go to China and find people I've never met before who believe in Jesus. And we share the most important thing that there could ever be shared between people. A shared affection for Jesus Christ is what holds the family together. And that only works because his riches are unsearchable. There's no heart that Jesus can't reach. There's no heart that Jesus doesn't satisfy. There's no one who's too different or too lost or too, too cut off from the community for Jesus to satisfy. So his riches have to be unsearchable so that he can appeal to everyone and create a family of all different kinds of people. So now Paul gets back to the church. What does he say in verses 9 and 10? He says that God gave him grace to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His attempt was now 
that through the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So what does Paul say? He's saying that God had a plan, that's the mystery, and that the plan is being made known now. The plan is the church. The plan is all different kinds of people rallying and coming together around King Jesus. This was not something that we could have seen from the Old Testament. Sure, we know, right, that the nations will come to worship Jesus. God says to Abraham, I will bless you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. But everyone would have been expecting that the offspring of Abraham would be a step above the nations. But no, everyone's together. This is the plan that Paul's making known. And what this text shows us, what we need to see right now, is that the church in God's eyes was always plan A. There was never another plan. This is what God was plotting from the Garden of Eden. When he was plotting how he was going to rescue the world and what he was going to do, he was thinking of rooms of people like this coming together to worship Jesus. This was always plan A. As Israel was in the desert, as they were stumbling, as they were failing, that was always anticipating the church. The church is God's plan. The church is the way that God has planned to redeem the world. And we think to ourselves, this doesn't feel very significant. Like, this doesn't feel very special. Think about all the stars in Hollywood and all the institutions and all the important things, and this doesn't feel very special. It feels so ordinary. And we need to be reminded that it's not in God's eyes that this was important to Jesus when he was dying. That we are important to Jesus. This is the most significant people on the planet. Not because we're special. Not because we're worthy. But because this is what Jesus is about. If Jesus is all about something, how is that not the most important thing? I don't care what Instagram says. This is the most important thing to Jesus. And I just want to say to anyone right now who's in this room that you can be a part of this if you don't trust in Jesus yet. That if you are here right now and you do not trust in Jesus, you're not a part of his people. You are not a part of his people yet. And the beautiful thing is that you can be right now. You can join the church right now by believing in him. It's the craziest thing. Everywhere you go, every job you apply for, every group of friends you like try to be cool enough to hang out with have their requirements. Do you need this? Can you do this? Are you this cool? And the gospel says, come as you are. All it takes is faith. All it takes is faith to become a member of the people of God and be a part of this, this church, which is the most important people on the planet because they are the people whom Jesus has saved and is saving and will save. Listen to Ephesians 5, verses 31 through 32. 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Friends, do you agree with me that we have to shed our individualistic notions about Christianity? That we have to stop thinking about Christianity as if it's just me and Jesus, as if we're lone wolf Christians, as if Christian friends and Christian websites and Christian radio and Christian churches are conveniences for me, as if I can go and seek them out and they help me on my relationship with Jesus and then I go my separate way, and not as if I've been saved into being a part of a new people. That's the new way to think. That's the new way, that's the way the New Testament thinks. It's part of our culture when we think that we're on this journey on our own. That's our individualistic culture talking to us when we think that the church is a voluntary club. Jesus never talks about it like that. When he calls it the bride, he doesn't think about it like a club. When he dies for the bride, he doesn't think about it that way. And I think sometimes what can reinforce this attitude is we talk so much and we say, Christ died for me. And I don't want anyone to lose that. But I feel like we talk about in that way too much. Now, it's true. It's true the New Testament that says Christ died for you if you trust in him individually. If you listen to Galatians 2.20, it says, The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But that verse is one of the exceptions. If you read through the New Testament, most of the times when it talks about Jesus dying for a you, 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 that word you is plural. It's talking about a people. When God works in the Bible, he's working with a people. God thinks less about you as an individual patch and more of the beautiful tapestry that he's weaving together. That's what it is in God's mind. God, when Jesus came, he wasn't dying for individual Christians as much as he was dying for the church that he was bringing them into to be a part of. Listen to what Paul says in Acts 20, 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Jesus bought the church with his own blood. And we need to understand this truth. If the church is really going to be a city within a city. You ever heard that phrase before? What we are is a new community, a new city, that we love one another, we welcome one another, we serve one another, in all the ways the world can't and won't. They live according to the old values of the flesh. That's the old city. And we're the new city. We're the new people. Not because we're special. If we ever get arrogant about that, let us remember that, just like Paul, we are less than the least of all sinners. And we've been included by grace. But friends, I don't ever see all people's church living up to this ideal 
if we only have a half-hearted commitment to the church, if we really think of ourselves as individual Christians and not as a part of this new people that Jesus is creating, we cannot be what Jesus wants us to be until we love the church like Jesus loved the church. That's, that's my burden for you today, is that Jesus will give you a love for the church like he has for the church. I'll be honest, you guys aren't on my heart and my mind as much as you should be. I want to pray for you more. I want to see you more. And until we love the church like Jesus does, it's just not going to happen. Until we remember that Christ died, not for just people, not just individuals, but for a people. This isn't going to happen. At the end of the movie Gladiator, General Maximus kills the evil emperor Claudius to save Rome. He saves Rome. And he says, Rome was a dream, and it will be realized. And then he dies. He is wounded mortally. And friends, this is how it was with Christ when he was on the cross. He was thinking about the reward, right? For the joy set before him, Christ endured the punishment. What's the reward? What's the joy? It's the people. It's the church. I'm sure you might feel like it's a crushing weight I might have just put upon you. Like, really, Ross? You, you want me to love the church like Jesus did? did didn't Jesus... Didn't he die for the church? Oh, do, can, can I really do that every day? Can I wake up and be, I'm about the church today just like Jesus is? And I think part of the answer to this question is in the very nature of the church. You see, before, like I said, when, when God started working through the nation of Israel, all the other nations had to come through Israel as the mediator, as the way to get to God. Something new that has happened, something great that has happened, is that each of us, because Jesus is a new me mediator, can go straight to God right now, anytime we want, and have a direct audience with him right now. That's what he says in verse 12. In him, through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. God doesn't want you to try to love the church like Jesus by yourself. He wants you to do it with his power. See, part of being a New Testament believer, part of being in this community means that you can talk directly to God and receive help directly from him. So how does he give you the strength to do what I've just called you to do? He gave you access. He gave you welcome to himself. What does our prayer lives look like? If we're going to be a church-loving people, we have to be a praying people. We have to take advantage of this access. And we have to remember that we're not alone. That's the very nature of the church, is that none of us are alone. I need your help to love you how I need to. I need your encouragement. I need your rebukes. 
I need your invitations, and you need the same for me. Every one of us needs one another, and the church provides the very support we need to love the church. So if you feel like this isn't you, the answer is not hiding. The answer is pushing in further up and further in, further up into Christ and further into Christ, further up and further into the community here. And maybe you feel like you're thinking about, you know, is APC for me? Is like, is this for me? Am I, am I worthy of being a part of this church? There's no one who's not worthy who's been washed by the blood of Jesus. His worthiness becomes our worthiness. And so if you're thinking like, man, I'm just not adequate enough to be a part of it. Yes, you are if you trust in Christ. Yes, you are if you trust in Christ. So now I want to answer the question, what should we do about these realities? And what difference should it make? Like day to day, what difference should this make? And in Paul's example of being the least of sinners upheld by grace, who's sharing the unsearchable riches of Christ with other people, that's not descriptive. That's not just like, oh, this is what happened. No, that is a model for us. The model for us in this church should be showing one another the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's precisely how you love the church. Now, the way that I think the most strategic way for us to show one another Christ are in our DNA groups and our MC groups. Now, our DNA groups, when we gather together as believers, what we're trying to do is point one another to Jesus. You don't have to have a microphone and stand up here to point other people to Jesus. You can do that every single day with your DNA. And the only answer we have for the people right around this building right now who are perishing right now, who are cut off from the love of God right now, is that we have a Savior, and he has unsearchable riches, and we can point him to that Savior. And that's what our MCs are for. You know, the Bible never says have a DNA group and have an MC group. It never does. That's just our best attempt to live out what the Bible tells us to do. And we're willing to try something else if this doesn't work. We're just going to be a people that's desperate to point people to the unsearchable riches of Christ. We're going to do whatever it takes to point each other and to point the neighborhood to Christ. And so I just want to ask, do you treat, and I have a tendency to do this, do you treat the Sunday gatherings as of first importance and the other meetings and gatherings and commitments to the other members throughout the week as just extras? as just optional, as legit second place. I just want to encourage us to do those things with our hearts. Like, let's love one another in DNA and MC groups with our hearts. Let's not just go through the motions. Let's never just show up to something again. If God has appointed you to show Jesus to someone else, to show the unsearchable riches of someone else, to someone else. You don't just do that lackadaisically. You go in with your heart, and you feel for them, and you try 
and you apply yourself. I just would ask that we would just be praying. Like, I, I pray before I preach a sermon because I feel like, oh, this is a weighty thing. But can we feel like our DNA groups are a weighty thing? Can we feel like MC groups are a weighty thing? Like when we're driving over there with our spouse, being like, honey, we need to pray. This is about what, about what we're about to do is a weighty thing. This isn't just playing around. This is the gospel of God. This is eternity that's at stake. Unless you think that you don't need grace to keep believing in God, you do. You do. And that's what DNA groups are about. You are God's instrument to keep people in the faith, to keep people trusting and hoping in Jesus Christ. So let's not treat these groups like they're not important. Let's not treat the Sunday sermon as if this is when grace comes and grace can't flow through you every single day. When Jesus said, out of you will flow streams of living water, he wasn't joking around. They can flow out of you if, if we seek him with the access we have to live out of the grace that he's given us in relationship to one another. And just one practical question you can ask if you're like, man, what do I do? Just say, what is, what is one thing I could do to encourage someone else or help someone else from APC today? Like what, who's just one person I could help today? Who's just one person I could cross paths with today? And so the, the quote that I open up the sermon with is that a lot of people find the church irrelevant. They find the church irrelevant. And I wonder if the churches that they find irrelevant are churches where people just come and go as they please and just are not committed to the, the people who God has put in front of them. Because it just doesn't feel irrelevant to me if the people in front of me are the people whose souls I'm most committed to. And it doesn't feel irrelevant if the people I gather with, they're most committed to me. Polls and statistics say people are leaving the churches in droves after they graduate high school, after they go to college. And I wonder if it's because they never experienced a community that's shaped and empowered by the gospel of Jesus Christ, where there's genuine love for other people and genuine commitment to them. I believe that this can be a place. <laughs> I believe that this can be a place that feels relevant to everyone who comes here because of the way God changes us to care about and commit to other people. And I long, I really do, I long to see this church become a more diverse place. I long to see more kinds of people in this room who don't look like me, who don't talk like me, who don't have the same background as me. And I just think that it will go a long way to be a kind of people that is just always inclined to just go towards other people, whether they're new or old, and just be about them, be about serving them. And I long to see this because this is what Jesus longs to see. John 17, 21 says, Jesus prays, Father, I pray that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. So we have the Trinity. We have the three in one. Is God three or one? Yes. Yes, he is. 
God is, is three. He's a diversity of beings. And he's a singularity. He's one being. That makes him a unity. God is a unity that cannot be comprehended. And when we become a unity, that's hard to comprehend how we're one, how we don't make sense except for the gospel of Jesus. We kind of are an object lesson of what the Trinity is like. This is not a second-tier issue. Being a real community with real love is not just one of the things we can be concerned. This is central to who God is. So let us live like that. And I love where this text concludes. Let's look at verse 10. His intent was now that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. I mentioned before that sometimes church doesn't feel significant. And I think one of the reasons it doesn't feel significant is because you think you're going to do a bunch of ordinary things that no one is ever going to recognize you for. No, no, one has, no one's going to see what I do to this person besides this person. No one's going to see the work I put in. No one's going to see. And God says, that's wrong. There is a whole world you're not even aware of that's looking in and watching my plan unfold. And it's really, I don't know why the texts say this, but God's saying that he's using the church to throw it in the face of his enemies. He's saying, my church shows you that you lost and that you're worthless. You know, in the Garden of Eden, God probably got made a lot of fun of by those fallen angels when Adam and Eve fell. He probably got made fun of when Israel stumbled again and again and again in the wilderness. He looked bad to his enemies, and they thought he was pathetic. They probably thought, thought God was so little and so small when Jesus came here, and instead of being king, he got crucified. But then Jesus rose from the dead. And then all of a sudden, people from every tribe and nation and tongue start having spiritual resurrections and forming into the church where people find Jesus more precious than life. And all of a sudden, the plan of God starts to make sense. All of a sudden, everyone who opposed God looks like a fool. All of a sudden, God looks wise and all of his enemies look foolish. I'm sure the, the Trojans probably laughed at the Greeks when they wheeled that for force in as a gift that was meant to appease them. But after those soldiers broke out and the city gates were thrown open and the Greeks stormed in and won the war, they weren't laughing anymore. And God's enemies aren't laughing anymore. God's enemies aren't laughing more as the church continues to grow and expand to new places. There are millions and millions and millions of Christians more than there were in most of the world history. The church is taking root in all sorts of different nations, places like Somalia. And it cannot be stopped. The more the powers of darkness try to stop the church, the more I hear from places like Iran and China, they fail to stop what God has planned. And they show that Jesus, he will have the reward for which he died. The Lamb of God will have the reward for which he died. That's what the church is all about. And if you want Jesus, 
to have the reward for which you died, if that's your heart passion, then make the church your passion too. Make the church your passion too. And so I just want to close and say that the church makes Jesus look glorious. And that's why we care about the church. And so now I just want to invite you to reflect. Please bow your head. Close your eyes if that's helpful. You can keep them open too. And just pray and just ask, Lord, what, what convicted me in this sermon? What encouraged me in this sermon? What did I learn? What, what do you want me to do? And just so you know, if there's anything really, any burden in your heart, that I'm going to be up here to pray with you after the service. There's going to be other leaders and their wives up here to pray. If you prefer to talk to a girl, there'll be a girl up here too. Um, and just spend a few moments with the Lord.